1: The first guest of the evening is truly a poet, he's an artist, he is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot?
0: There's a kind of restless feeling and it pulls me from within. It sends my senses reeling and my wheels begin to spin. In the quietude of winter, you can hear the wild geese cry, and I will always love that sound until the day I die. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates Gordon Lightfoot's music song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Portland, Oregon, Eileen Massover. Eileen, welcome to Carefree Highway Revisited.
1: Hi. Yeah, it's great to be here, Mike.
0: It's great to have you with us. So, I got to start with the question I always ask people when they're first time guests, and that is, how did you first get into Gordon Lightfoot's music?
1: A long time ago. I was in my sophomore year in art school. That was 1970. And that was the year that, if you could read my mind, came on the radio. And it was all over the radio. And I lived in Philadelphia. And I can recall whenever it came on the radio, just, if possible, stopping whatever I was doing so I could listen to it. He was a voice that was remarkable. Very early on, he was in my life. And there were all the other people who were around then, everybody else I was listening to, you know, Joni and James and everybody else. But Gordon, he really touched me. And I think of him as my musical soulmate. His music is different from me than anybody else's.
0: Well, what a great musical soulmate to have. And I agree with you. There's nobody else like him that I have ever heard or that I'm sure I ever will hear. What do you think is the thing that draws you to Lightfoot's music above all?
1: Well, first, his voice, especially from years gone by. And then it's his poetry. And it's across all different genres. Love songs, ship songs the meaning of life songs, whale songs, you name it, you can find it. It's like there is a Gordon Lightfoot song or a line for just about everything.
0: I like the fact that you're saying how versatile he is. And I think there's a lot of people who say, you know, I loved him folk, I loved him rock, I loved him country, I loved him bluegrass, whatever the subject that he was talking about, that it just really rang true. And I think a lot of Artists in those days and since they tend to lodge themselves just into love songs or just into historical things or things like that, and it it makes them less accessible. But I think Gordon has really succeeded in transcending a lot of those different types. What's your experience been in seeing Lightfoot live?
2: It's great
1: to see him live. Just saw him October twenty second in Vancouver, Coquitlam, the British Columbia. And what it's like now to see him live is just an honor to be in the room with him. I'll be there anywhere he plays. He's the man who wrote this music. I want to hear him do it. But what it was like back in 1971 or two, the first time I realized it, I knew he was Canadian. I didn't know he toured. And to find him in Philadelphia, at the Philadelphia Academy of Music, by the way, was just incredible. I could get in line and get tickets like front row seats, orchestra pit seats. He was right in front of me. And and I'm a photographer. I did a lot of photography back then. So I would bring my Minolta SRT 101 with me to concerts, (laughs) try X film, push it to 1600. And I took photos off and on during the concert because seeing him was just as important as hearing him.
0: Well, especially because you had such great seats would be almost sacrilegious not to take pictures. And this was probably back in the day when they didn't make as big a deal about you can't use flash photography or things like this at those shows, because they do that at most venues these days. You mentioned the Philadelphia Academy of Music. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Have you ever had a chance to meet Lightfoot?
1: Thankfully, I get to say yes.
0: Wow. Tell us about that.
1: I've met him about five or six or seven times, twice in the 70s, and then a couple times waiting outside the venue, and luckily several times being able to go to a meet and greet and talk with him. Can I tell you about the first time?
0: Totally. Yes, I want to hear it.
1: The very first time, as I told you, I took photos. So the second concert I went to, which was a year or two later, I had developed all the photos. I had eight by tens. I had three by fives. I wanted to show him the photos. Actually, I wanted to give him all my photos. So after the concert, my husband and I waited at the stage door entrance at the Academy of Music. And I honestly don't think there was anybody else waiting. There might have been, but I don't remember it. And so I had my box of photos and I was waiting till they came out. And one of either somebody in the band or one of his roadies Saw me standing there and said, is there anything I can do for you? I said, I've got these photos I took of Gordon at the last concert. And he disappeared back into the backstage. And he came back out about two minutes later and he said, come on with me.
0: I love Uh, where this is going.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we went with him and he led me to Eugene Ormandy's dressing room. Eugene Ormandy was the conductor for the Philadelphia Orchestra, I believe, back then. And Gordon was sitting there in a chair. He looked really tired after the concert. He was quiet. There were a couple people around. I showed him the pictures. I handed them to me. He looked through them. He liked them. Unfortunately, then he gave them back to me, which I really wanted him to have them. But I didn't feel the need to make sure that he took them. So I took them back. But we chatted for a few minutes and I wasn't expecting that. I thought it was amazing. So that was the first time I spoke with him.
0: So you had an audience with the man and you were able to do that by virtue of the photos and being in the right place at the right time. And we should all be that lucky to meet the musicians that mean the most to us, particularly as Lightfoot is getting on in years. We don't know how many more times that's going to be possible. So I really envy you, you know, have had that opportunity. So today we're talking about the song Restless, and it's from the Waiting for You album. We'll talk more about that album specifically in a little bit. So I wanted to know, why did you want to talk about this song in particular on the
1: show? Good question. This song just really speaks to me. It feels like a meditation. And as Gordon said to me when I told him what a great rendition he did at one of his concerts, he said, ethereal. Sort of a kind of in a funny way. But I do think he thinks of it that way. It's like in that category of songs for him that are ethereal. And I just connect to it in a way that I just think it's so beautiful. And past his, as he would even say, past his prime, right? It's in the 90s. Mm-hmm. He's a middle-aged man. But that doesn't have to do with how I hear it. How I hear it is just, I think there are so many layers in it that I still don't understand.
0: You know, speaking as a musician, I think ethereal is probably the perfect word for it. And I like the idea of a meditation also. And for me, in addition to everything you've said, which absolutely rings true for me, it's perfectly positioned on what many people consider a comeback album. And we're going to talk about the lyrics in just a second. And we're going to talk about this idea that this may have been a comeback album for him. But I think... The thing that you said about him being a middle-aged man, I don't hear a middle-aged man singing. I mean, this could be anybody who's just lived long enough to be retrospective. I was that way when I was 18, and I've been that way, you know, at different times in my life since. So in that sense, it's a kind of a universal song, and that's why I love it so much. Now, i got to ask, you: do you have any anecdotal stories about the song how it was important to you at a particular time in your life, or is it just one that has always meant a lot to you?
1: Oddly enough, it hasn't always meant a lot to me. I got the album when I came out, and I listened to the songs. I kind of put it away. I really didn't connect. I think it was the one song on the album that I felt the closest to, but it's been in recent years that it's come back to me. I think he started playing it in concert in recent years, up until he didn't play it at the last concert I went to, and I was kind of disappointed, but he's played it at like the last five concerts I've gone to. So I think hearing him singing it in concert really brought me into it because it gets very quiet. There's no drums in this song that I could hear. It just took on a meaning for me that I hadn't quite gotten to before.
0: Yeah, there is some percussion, but there's no oh, yeah. there's no drums in the sense that we think of them in terms of a rock song. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Is there a time and a place or a setting for you to listen to the song that is just perfect? Or is it just whenever you feel like listening to it?
1: Anytime. I'll listen to a Gordon Lightfoot anywhere, anytime, close my eyes, there I am. I would say that how I see the setting of the song kind of like a day like today it's gloomy out it's cold
0: out yeah you're talking about the kind of weather you get a lot in portland you know Mm -hmm. where it's cloudy and it hasn't quite rained but may or maybe it's just stopped raining but it's not raining at that particular moment where your mind goes all sorts of places and for me that's the kind of place that my mind goes to when i'm listening to it it's a cloudy day it's late fall maybe it's not winter yet but it's late fall and As we're going to see in just a second, you can hear birds flying south for the winter. So you know it's not going to be long before the snow starts falling, the rain starts falling. It really starts to get cold, and you know the earth is going to sleep for a while. So I think we're on the same page with that. Now, I couldn't find very much about the origins of the song when I was looking around. Nicholas Jennings' book mentions it twice in the entire thing. I do know that this is his first album in seven years. He had said that East of Midnight was going to be his last album. And then seven years later, he comes back in the early 90s. And in the midst of the grunge and the other sort of mechanical music coming out of the late 80s into the early 90s, here comes this lot of acoustic stuff. And it's pretty sensational to have that. We know that he'd been sober for about 10 years. And we know that one of the reviews, I think it was on allmusic.com, said, if you were worried that sobriety and serenity were going to damage Gordon Lightfoot's muse, you don't need to worry, or words to that effect. So when I started thinking about where this song came from, I thought of the word restless. And the word restless means you're not able to relax. You are feeling either anxious or you're feeling bored. And I have to wonder whether Lightfoot might not have been feeling one or both of those things as a result of this seven-year hiatus since he'd put a record out. So I'm wondering, do you agree with that? I mean, seven years is a long time to not do what you're called to do. Do you think, I mean, just putting it in a personal, if you couldn't do art for seven years, do you think that you would feel like it's just exploding out of you? Would you feel the same kind of restlessness that we're talking about here?
1: You know, I haven't done a lot of art in recent years. So that's a really interesting question. And sometimes I do feel that way. But it's it's interesting that for all the music that consumed his life previously, seven years, not putting out an album. He was doing concerts, I think, because I believe I saw him during that time. Yeah, he was. so. I don't know. I don't totally have a take on that. I, I also kind of looked at what restless means, finding it difficult to keep still, dissatisfied or wanting something else. So was he wanting more music, looking for something else?
0: It's possible the writing wasn't happening for him as much. And that may have been the reason he said, OK, I'm going to stop after East of Midnight. But I do think that it's a very apt title for the song and as I said the song is perfect because he's saying I'm back and maybe here's the reason why I was gone for so long or why I decided to reemerge because I was feeling this sort of restlessness and I may be completely wrong he's never gone on record about it as far as I know we'll be right back to our conversation with Eileen Massover about Restless but first a word from a podcast partner or two
2: the world at war two lives in the balance Who will live to see another day, the leader of the free world or a man falsely accused of treason? In this new dramatic audio series, A Date with Death, Helen Meeker has to make that choice and time is running out. Assigned to exposing an espionage ring operating on American and British soil, Helen must outwit bank robbers, avoid booby traps, and even have dinner with a dead man. When the Date With Death is over, who's picking up the check? Ace Collins' best-selling World War II novella, A Date With Death, comes to life in this production by the Long Highway Players. Available on Acast and coming soon to a podcast feed near you, A Date With Death is a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network.
3: Have you ever taken a great high school history class? If you have, then you'd probably agree that the one thing that made it so enjoyable was your teacher, and understandably so. At their best, history teachers are vibrant storytellers leading you on a gripping, fun, fantastic learning journey. But sadly, we know it can be pretty difficult to continue that journey after graduation with no one there to be your entertaining tour guide through the world of dense, obscure historical research. Fortunately, 20-Minute History is here to help with that. It's the new podcast that aims to be your very own high school history teacher for everything you didn't learn in high school. Come join us as we explore commonly unknown histories and our informative, engaging, and amusing 20-Minute episodes. It's 20-Minute History, out now on all your podcasting platforms.
0: So, let's look at the lyrics for a little bit. There's a kind of restless feeling and it pulls me from within. So at first, he's getting it from inside himself. So his conscience or his gut is telling him there's something not completely right. You've got to go and address something in your life. And in this case, it may have been writing and recording an album. In the quietude of winter, you can heal the wild geese cry. And I got to think those are Canadian geese because he's probably living in Toronto when this is happening. But I don't know if there is a word as quietude. <laughs> you know, that, there so is. that may have been... It, does it really exist?
1: It's in the dictionary. It's, uh, it came out of Britain. It's an old word. It's the state of being quiet.
0: I didn't know. And so yeah. etymologically, that makes sense. But I just didn't know. I didn't look it up. I hadn't it's, heard it before.
1: It's one of those Gordon Lightfoot things, you know, like, who comes up with quietude? That's like Emily Dickinson. Dickinson? Yeah. It's an older word. Why use that word? Beautiful.
0: It's kind of like in Canadian Railroad Trilogy, he used the word verdant as to this verdant country they came from all around. And I had never even, first of all, I hadn't heard it as being the word verdant. And then when I did my show with John McLaughlin on Canadian Railroad Trilogy early in this series, he said verdant. And I had to stop the recording and get a dictionary and look it up because I'd never even heard that word before. So it says a lot about his literacy and his facility with words. There's a plain and simple answer to each and every quest. And I think he knows there's a cure for this restlessness, and maybe for him it means going back into the studio. Maybe it means writing more songs and producing them, and the joy that comes from being with the band and creating something out of thin air, which he did all the time in the 70s and then in the 80s and the 90s, that wound down, and now he's back As somebody who he would be 54, I think, or 55, maybe when he released this album. So certainly had living under his belt. From every quiet dancer who might be a special guest, he's talking about movies made for TV and he's talking about soap operas. Eileen, where is this coming from? I mean, this I don't know,
1: because it's really strange. (laughs) <laughs> it makes it, it, no
0: sense because he's not somebody who really followed pop culture ever in his music. He was pretty much marching the beat of his own drum. So I thought, why is he mentioning all this stuff just out of the clear blue, but you don't you don't have any angle on it?
1: I, maybe he was thinking about restless. Maybe he looked up restless and came up with all these different things and then decided to write a couple sentences about it. it it's very strange. If this is a meditation, if this is a meditative song, it, it kind of almost breaks that feeling. It pops out as what? Did
0: he may know? be making the analogy that TV movies, a lot of them probably have restless characters or characters who feel like they need to do something. I don't watch movies made for TV very much. And oh. I've never watched The Young and the Restless, so I can't really say that there's anything that resonates there.
1: No, I think it's just the word. And maybe it got him thinking, I don't know. I did want to go back to the quest. And there's a plain and simple answer to each and every quest. Yeah. So that pops Don Quixote.
0: Ah, uh, okay. Because he's, this is my quest to follow that star.
1: Yep. That's what it feels like for me. I could just be reading into it. But he does choose his words pretty carefully.
0: Somebody much smarter than me has probably done some deep dives into his lyrics and how many times he's used the word quest. I don't remember if that one was in Don Quixote, but it's certainly it's resonating that there is a quest there, even though Lightfoot didn't write the Cervantes novel. I mean, he's certainly just writing a song about it. Do you get this restless feeling when you hear a whistle blast like an echo from the past of an old engine flying down a road that's iron cast? So now it's not internal that the restlessness is coming from. It's being prompted by something external. So he hears a train. Probably the railroads were still running through Toronto back then, and maybe they still do. But we know that he's written some great songs about railroads. Canadian Railroad Trilogy and Steel Rail Blues. And he may have been reminded as he listened to this that, hey, the railroads have always been a source of inspiration for you. Do you remember where you were when you wrote that song? Do you remember how it felt when you were writing about this image of trains and railroads and maybe thinking to yourself, hey, there's more here. This well has not run dry.
1: Yeah, right.
0: The Uh, lake is blue. The sky is gray. The leaves have turned to gold. The wild goose will be on her way. The weather is much too cold. So this had a meaning for you. Go ahead.
1: Well, this song is has such a general feel for me. But the goose, he goes on to mention dad. But hearing the goose reminds me of when I was a kid, the sound in my Philadelphia neighborhood overhead were airplanes. And I guess now it's jet planes. But I notice this whenever I hear it, when everything's quiet, and I live in kind of a rural area, and I hear an occasional airplane overhead, it takes me right back to being like nine years old. Like, mm. I am right back in my neighborhood, in my house on maybe a summer afternoon, with everything silent, and sort of this sense of... I don't even know where I am. And then there's this plane uh, that it takes him. It not only takes him forward and to where maybe he wants to be, but backwards into some memories for him.
0: Oh, no doubt. And we do know from psychologists that sounds and odor too can be very powerful memory triggers. And, you know, you've experienced that and Lightfoot experienced that. And I, I have when I'll smell the air in the San Mateo Highlands, which is an area about half an hour away from where I live now, because that's where I spent my really young days at my Aunt Jane's house. And then she lived in the hills of San Mateo, not too far from Half Moon Bay. And there were all sorts of trees, particularly eucalyptus trees. And so when I smell that, you know, my mind goes back to me being three years old and running around her backyard with her son. So I I know exactly what you're talking about. I think for him, he's setting the scene of where he is. I don't know if his house at the time or his house now is right near a lake, but he did grow up in Aurelia, and we do know that there are bodies of water there, you know, lakes, rivers, creeks, that stuff. Then he goes into this reference to fish, okay, when the muskie and the old trout too have all gone down to rest, we will be returning to the things that we love best. And it sounds to me like he's talking about picking up the trail of his music, where he left off. I don't know if there's any particular significance to the fish references, because those fish that we're talking about, trouts and muskies, they could be diurnal, meaning that they do their work in the day or nocturnal, meaning they do their work in the night. But I think he's just setting up the analogy that we're going to return to the things that we love best, which is writing and recording and performing.
1: I hear that. That is a very likely interpretation. And I'm going to go in a different way just for the sake of it. So I wonder, is he also talking about, Okay, he's 50 in his 50s. Maybe he's starting to think about where's my life going. Eventually, death. Are the fish going to hibernate, or are they going to die? So when you go to go to your rest, it's a, a euphemism for dying. Are we returning to the creativity that we love best? Are we returning to where we came from? If we have a, a spiritual belief. Are we starting to return to that? There is winter. The geese are flying off for the winter, but then winter is also, it's interesting. It could go in any direction.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought about it in terms of death, but it's certainly, you know, to rest, I think actually that does make a lot of sense that it may be talking about that. He's never been particularly religious in his work. He mentioned Jesus in Sit Down, Young Stranger, but I don't recall that he's made a whole lot of other spiritual or religious allusions. But he could be talking about death, that's possible. Then you mentioned this a minute ago, do you get that restless feeling when you think about your dad and the scrimshaw that he had of an old schooner roving neath a sky that's ironclad? So again, he's getting it from within thinking about something. I have no idea whether Lightfoot's father was a sailor or a devotee of the ocean, so he may not be talking about his dad. But we also know, and this is another thing that's derivative, is that in addition to railroads, one of his favorite topics is schooners, ghosts of Cape Horn, Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, Ballad of Yarmouth Castle, just to name a few. So maybe something reminds him, hey, you wrote these great songs about sailing vessels. And again, there's more to do here.
1: And and what if this is a memory about his dad who died when Gordon Life was in his 30s? His dad was 63. I did a little looking.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, good.
1: In prep. What if he is talking about his dad? What if his dad did have a scrimshaw that maybe he had on his desk? Or I don't believe his dad was a professional sailor I think he owned a business I, I read that he owned a business for 30 years but what if this was something that his dad liked and that that old schooner when I first listened to this recently again, schooners are typically what were etched into scrimshaw so right. reference to something that he really still has and it's his dad's treasure maybe he played with it when he was like, it's like what is this about? and when i listen to this song and i hear that section i think of my father who died when i was young and his piano cuz he played piano he was a pianist but that wasn't his living he's a great piano player and i have the piano it's like there's this connection that's still left you know this physical connection to something that your loved one had he's gone but you still have it you still have the feeling of it when you touch it when you see it you lose your dad you can't get him back so there is this restless yearning of darn you know he's gone and this is all I have
0: you've thought about this a lot and I love that you've done that and it's very possible that he was thinking about his own father we just don't know if there was an actual scrimshaw we don't know how much of a devotee Gordon Lightfoot Senior was of the ocean, or whether he had that object that maybe he bought in a museum or something. I mean, we just don't know. And he is saying when you think about your dad, whereas I would think, you know, I was thinking about my dad and the scrimshaw that he had, because he's certainly not been shy about using the personal pronoun in this song and other places. So I just thought it was it was an interesting projection, if nothing else, if he wasn't really talking about something out of his own experience. We'll be right back to our conversation with Eileen Massover about Restless. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two.
1: Hi, this is Audie Martello, the host of the Mostly Folk podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music, that may or may not be true to the genre. Sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick every so often. As well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at mostlyfolk.org.
0: Hello, I'm JT, a lifelong student of the paranormal and the unexplained. I've spent over 35 years researching and learning about a wide range of subjects, from UFOs and cryptids, to ghosts and the supernatural, from hidden and lost treasures, to mankind's mysterious past, and all other things mysterious and Fortean. Each week I'll bring you some relevant and interesting articles in this genre, as well as a different topic, some you may be familiar with, but many you most likely will never have known existed. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. And let me be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained on the paranormal sun. There's a kind of restless feeling and it catches you off guard as we gaze off at the distance through the trees in my backyard. I would give a great deal to be sitting in his backyard and looking through those trees and wondering what there is on the other side that's inspiring him at this particular moment.
1: And I also wanted to say that that sounds like a moment in Lazy Morning, from back from the 70s. There's a line in there. I didn't write down the line, but it's being comfortable with the wife and the kids, and I got a beer, and I'm having a good time. But I also, you know, look through the trees in my backyard, wondering what's out there, like that poult. It's the same feeling.
0: And I think it's Another example of how he's trying to return to threads in his past, and he's picking them up musically again, or in a literary way. So I know what you're talking about. Now he's back to the geese. I can feel that restless yearning of the geese as off they roam. Then trade that for a warm bed and a place I can call home. And I got to wonder, did he feel at that particular moment, did he feel torn between the desire to perform and record and tour and write and be a professional musician again on the one hand? And then on the other hand, he wants to stay home. He's married at this time to his second wife, Elizabeth. They have a son named Miles. There will be another child before that marriage ends. And he did dedicate the album to Elizabeth and Miles. Mm -hmm. So I got to wonder. Trade that, can feel the restlessness, but then I'm going to trade that for security or domesticity.
1: Because he made the choice earlier in his life to go for the music. He made that choice back then, and this time he's he's making a different choice. But there's still those geese, and (laughs) there's still the other side of those trees.
0: And he's still feeling that restlessness. And to feel that, I mean, it gives me hope as a man in my 50s. When I feel a certain restlessness, you know, it makes me feel like, hey, you're not alone. This is not unique to somebody who's much older than I am and wrote this when I was in college. It's reassuring to me. We get that restless feeling when you hear the wicked blast of a specter from the past of a cold diesel running down a road that's built to last. Again, it's a railroad reference. And then I think about the road that's built to last, meaning that the path of his life. He's got more to do. Now, he's going to have health scares in the next several years. We know that. But the fact that he stopped drinking and that if he hadn't stopped drinking, it might very well have led to his demise. I think the road is built to last, meaning that there's the road out before you and we don't see the end just yet.
1: That's nice. I hadn't thought about that. That's beautiful.
0: Still, I get that restless feeling when I hear a whistle blast, see an image from the past of an old schooner flying down a sky that's overcast. And you mentioned planes, and so I have to think that this is also about planes and that, you know, the idea that you're back on the road. And there's all sorts of allusions that he has made to the road in a number of his songs. But, I mean, schooners don't fly. No. So he's got to either be talking about a plane or maybe he's talking about a cloud formation that, wow, that looks like a schooner and I see it
1: going by. Yeah, or the schooner on the scrimshaw that his dad had.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, he could be referring to that too. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's true.
1: Like that's a play on words, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Overcast, cloudy, overcast, a sense of something that you can't get through.
0: Could be. I mean, overcast, I always think of that as being a cloudy day. Yeah. I I don't know that he's being that deep about it because he's referring to a sky. And then he ends the song there. I mean, you have an instrumental fade out, but there's, you know, he said everything that he's going to say.
1: And maybe that's his dad again.
0: It could be his dad yet again. Yeah. Again, he's never gone as that I could find. He never said, well, this is a song about some cathartic experience that I had and related to my father, although it certainly could have happened that way. He's just never explained it. It's and he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't have to.
1: No, he doesn't. And and But it's so um, the long, was it? It's almost a whistle sound, but that long sound at the beginning, the long sound at the end is framing the entire song. When I think about meditation and, and in groups or small groups or even alone, there's a chime or a mantra that you start it with out loud, and then you go into the meditation. And then at the end, you can ring it again and come out of it. I just had that image in the, today that what if that sound leading us in and then taking us out, it really is holding the song. Like, what would it be without
0: that? Well, you know, it's interesting because the very beginning of the song, you have this synthesizer for a few seconds, and it's meant to sound like stringed instruments, but there's no orchestra that's cited in the liner notes. So you got to think it's Mike Heffernan doing something on a keyboard. And it sounds a little bit like the kind of chime or. A tone you would hear at the beginning of a meditation. I haven't meditated that much, but it resonated with me. Now, I have no idea if Lightfoot was or is into meditation. Again, he's never gone on record for that, but it makes sense in that sort of context. Yeah. Now, I said earlier that Waiting for You is the album where this song was. It was the first song on the album. It was much more in the traditional vein. So he wasn't using electric guitars as much. He wasn't using synthesizers as much. It was less of a attempt to be something, honestly, that I don't think Lightfoot is or was. So I guess a good question for you, Eileen, would be Is Waiting for You the Comeback album, or was it just the next album from somebody that never really went away?
1: I go with the second that there's an album from somebody who. Continued to be here. It just, it was next on the list. Yeah, I don't think of it as a comeback album. What do you think?
0: I think he never really left, but I also know that in a way, this was his artistic rebirth. I mean, again, that seven year gap in his recording career, you can't get away from that. And this is, I think, him maybe feeling his oats a little bit, maybe realizing, okay, he doesn't have forever. But also, as you said earlier, Eileen, that he was choosing the music in earlier years. Now he's going the other way, which is he's being at home with his family. He's watching the sun come up and the sun come down rather than trying to, as Bob Seeger said it, moving eight miles a minute for months at a time. So in that sense, I think he's recovered who he was from the confusing time in the 80s. That's a very long way of <laughs> answering your question, but no, that's it's great. Yeah. It's, well,
1: it's, it's also, I mean, when you think about quitting alcohol in 82, that is huge. And he's publicly said that he felt that alcohol was the juice that helped him create his songs, that it kept him lubricated and going. And I don't know if that's true. I think that's What it felt like for him. But for anybody who quits drinking, it changes your life, the way he was drinking. But he he did keep performing, thank goodness, Yeah. during that time.
0: Well, yeah, if he had quit performing, then I think seven years is an awfully long time to stay out of the public consciousness, particularly in the 80s and the 90s. And these days, I mean, if you're off the air for seven minutes, I think people probably move on. I can tell you that what I've heard is that people who get sober, who get rid of the burden of alcohol or drugs, they will tell you that any day they're alive and awake, it's Christmas. You know, they're just happier than clams. And I think Lightfoot was that guy to some degree during those years. The album did go to number 24 in Canada. The song was not released as a single. I think there were two or three singles released from this record, but this wasn't one of them. The album didn't chart in the U.S. or the U.K. or Australia and New Zealand. So Lightfoot did pay a little bit of a commercial price for being out of the limelight. But on the other hand, I think he was probably more personally satisfied during that time than he might have been otherwise. And as you say, he did stay in the performing circuit. Mm -hmm. He did go on tours every year, every couple of years. So let me ask you this. We talked a little bit about the percussion that is my favorite part of the song musically you know I think one of them kind of gave me the impression of a woodpecker <laughs> um and Barry Keene is somebody that I'm trying to get on the show and maybe he can talk about it at some length if I ever do get him but it does give this kind of forest feeling and adds a little bit of mystery and I don't know if that was Barry thinking of it or whether it was Gordon who's saying, hey, add that in, because we know Lightfoot produced this album himself. He did not, you know, have an outside producer. And the fact that the melody is just a little twisty, it's a sweet melody, but it has some changes in the chords that leave you feeling, I don't want to say unsettled, but I can't think of a better way to say it, you know, that it never quite resolves Even at the end of a verse, you feel like he could keep going with the melody line if he wanted to, because he'd written it in such a way that it didn't resolve musically. So the percussion and the melody, those are my favorite musical aspects of the song. What about you? What was your favorite musical part of it?
1: I think I feel the same way. The shift into, I guess, minor chords is kind of what you're talking about.
0: The minor transitions, yes.
1: Yeah. It's just, they say so much. Because that is really, your mood goes with it. My mood goes with it as I'm listening to it. It's leading me to how to feel. But it's it's beautiful.
0: We do know that it's the usual lot. And thank God he was able to get them back. Terry Clements, Rick Haynes, Mike Heffernan, and Barry Keane, who had worked with him a whole lot before then. Pee Wee Harris, I don't think had retired yet, but they didn't need any steel guitar on this record. So I don't think he played on it. Just that wasn't the nature of the songs. But as you were talking about Philadelphia, which I love, I've only been there once, but I really had a good time when I was there. The very first time he ever played this song was at the Academy of Music in Philadelphia in September of 1992, after it had been recorded, but before the record was released. So I think he was saying hey, there's a record, you're going to get a, a preview of a tune on the next album. And then the last time he played it was about nine months ago, and he played it at the Terrytown Music Hall on April 8th of 2022. He's played it almost 700 times in concert. You know, between that, 677 times last count, it is his 11th most played song in concert. Wow. So, So I know that'll do your heart good, both for the Philadelphia reference and for the frequency that it's played. There are two official covers I could find of this song. Jerry Candiston, who was on my show recently, and his episode will be coming out in the next few weeks. And then Mark Davis and Lori Matheson both have done this song. I have not heard either one of them, but I'm wondering if you have, and if so, if you have any thoughts.
1: I have not. I have only heard Gordon's.
0: Is there anybody from either modern music or other musicians that you think could do a decent job on this?
1: You know, the first name that came to my mind, just because I get her feed on Facebook, is Janice Ian. However, she's just retired from music Mm -hmm. because of her voice. Um, I don't know exactly what's going on, but she's still alive and well. I could have imagined her doing it. She has a strong voice and a quiet one at the same time. I can't Uh, think of anybody else right
0: now. I thought of James Taylor, Harry Chapin, God rest his soul, would have been another person, although Harry was not known for doing songs that were written by anybody else. He wrote most of his own stuff. And then the other person that I thought of, as you were saying, and I'm not real acquainted with Janicean's music, but I am a little bit more acquainted with Holly Near. Again, Holly doesn't do many things that she doesn't write herself. But I think if there were another woman who could do it, you might have to change some of the lyrics just to make it more appropriate. But I think Holly might be able to do an okay job with it as well.
1: What do you think of KD Lang?
0: Don't know her well enough. I mean, this is not a country song in the classic sense. So I'd have to think about whether KD could do it. I mean, she certainly has the vocal chops. I just don't know if she'd bring the same kind of feeling to it.
1: I don't think of her as country. That's very interesting.
0: Yeah, I have to think about it. So, Eileen, as we're sort of wrapping up here, any other thoughts on this song that we haven't already covered?
1: I just love to be able to sit down and listen to it and just allow it to wash over me. That is mostly how I think about it. And like so much of his other work, It's almost always new to me, no matter how many times I hear it, particularly this song, because it's got so many different things happening than a lot of his other stuff.
0: Yeah, it's a very deep song and it's got a whole lot of levels to it. And that's probably why it's endured and why he plays it so often. So Eileen, I wanted to thank you for taking the time today. I know it's something that we've been talking about for a while. This was a lot of fun to talk about a very beautiful song and we did it in good company and I hope I can have you on the show again sometime soon.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Mike. I'd love that.
0: And thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your listening matter. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com. I'd like to make a special request for you to visit my Patreon page. I love this show so much, and I want to keep it going, and you're in a position to help. Please head over to www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. A dollar or two a month is all I ask. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Well, our next episode is going to feature a very special guest. Lightfoot's former road manager, Richard Harrison, is going to be with us towards the end of February, and he'll be talking about his book, Once Upon a Red Eye, and some of his recollections of working with the band and with Gordon. Until then, for Eileen Massover, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time.